Well, good morning. It's a pleasure to be with you this morning. My name is Chris Colquitt. For those of you who may not know me, I am uh, the incoming senior pastor of this church. This happily is our last, or my last, visitation. Uh, we will be here in the flesh for real uh, in just a few weeks. So great to be with you. Uh, just a couple of things. One, congratulations to the fellows again. Uh, the fellows program is a treasure to this church. Dennis Doran is a treasure to this church. So give them all a hug and, and um, say thank you. Happy Mother's Day to the mothers in this room. Jesse issued a, a very strong command, and so I will, I will heed it. Uh, my mother is actually here this morning. She's up here helping with some house stuff. So happy Mother's Day, Mom. Happy Mother's Day to all of you. Um, we are so grateful. My kids are celebrating uh, Kristen at home, and that's as it should be. It's their holiday, not mine. So I'm, I'm here with my mom, uh, although I'm, I'm sorry not to be home. Um, okay, so... In the month of June, uh, no, month of May, that's where we are. Life is disorienting. In the month of May, we are doing a little mini-series in Ephesians chapter 4 on the life of the church, and that spun off of the two sermons that I did on Paul's prayers for the church in Ephesians, and then Jesse very helpfully set us up in Ephesians 1 with some big themes, and last week, Kelly brought us to the first part of Ephesians chapter 4, and there we saw that we are called as the body of Christ, to bear with one another in love, using our gifts and speaking the truth in love as we grow together into the full maturity of the body of Christ. That wholeness and unity that we long for and that we see by the work of the Spirit among us. At the end of that passage that Kelly preached on last week in verse 16, and you can see it in your Bible if it's open for you, uh, Paul says this, speaking about the body of Christ, he says, the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Our text this week jumps off of that and in some ways can be seen as Paul's expansion on what it means for the body to be working properly as it builds itself up in love. We're not going to get away from the corporate realities of the church that Paul's focused on in Ephesians 4, and yet in this text we're about to read, it is more focused on the individual. But as we're going to see as we move through Paul's teaching, our individual growth as Christians, as we put on the new self, is intimately connected to the life of the church and community. So with that, let's read our passage, see what Paul has for us this morning in his word, in God's word. Um, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 to 24. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learn Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. This is God's word. Let me pray for us this morning. Father in heaven, we rejoice that you have called us together by your word, this motley crew who is assembled in this place on Sunday morning 
We are here because you have called us, and now we attend to your word in which you reveal yourself to us. We couldn't know you if you didn't reveal yourself to us. You've done that in all of creation such that we are without excuse, but you've done it savingly in this, your holy word, and in your son, Jesus Christ. And so we pray now that as we attend to your word, you would be with us, that the Holy Spirit who breathed this out through the Apostle Paul would be with me and with all of us, that we might see and treasure Christ Jesus, our Lord. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. So I think I said this at the start of another sermon a few months ago, but I'll say it again and I'll say it a lot. The Christian life, the Christian faith, is fundamentally a resurrection faith. The Christian life is about the hope of the resurrection, a movement from death to life as we see in Jesus Christ himself who came and died and rose victorious over death and invites us to enter into that resurrection life, making the way for us. The major note of that then, the major note of the Christian life is hope. We hope in the resurrection. We look forward to the time when there is a decisive finale, when all the dead will be raised incorruptible. We will be brought into life if we have put our faith in Jesus Christ. Had a number of memorial services in this church recently, and as we go and we both grieve the loss of life, but also look forward to the resurrection, this is what we are doing. We look in hope to the resurrection. We look in hope to the life that Jesus has secured for us and has gone before us in, where our life is hidden with him on high. This is the Christian pattern of life. It's a pattern of hope. And yet, there is a way in which, as Christians in this world, before our earthly death and before our resurrection, even as we look forward, we recognize that the future is breaking into our lives now. It's breaking in through the work of the Holy Spirit, which Jesse preached on several weeks ago. The Holy Spirit, this down payment of the eternal life to which we are called. And so, even as we look forward in hope, and that's the major theme of our life, we, we see that as we live as Christians, that hope, that eternal life is breaking into our lives. Paul, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 12, calls Timothy and calls us to take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. You've been called to eternal life. Eternal life has been secured for you in Jesus. Now take hold of it. Now. This morning, this day, in this fallen world, take hold of eternal life now. And, and Paul here in this text, as he draws this distinction between the old self and the new self, is saying something very similar to what he says to Timothy in 1 Timothy. He's saying, live into your future. Live into the resurrection that has been secured for you. Take hold of eternal life. Christ has secured it. He has called you to it. And now by the power of the Holy Spirit, we get to live into that eternal life now. We get to live resurrection lives, new lives now in this time. We don't do that so that we will be saved, so that we will be justified. We do it because we are justified and saved, not to earn our salvation, but because Christ has earned it for us. Indeed, our sanctification is part of his salvation of us. He not only declares us righteous, but subdues the power of sin in our life and makes us more and more like him. This is the Christian 
life. And this text this morning helps us think about that movement, that movement from the old self to the new self, that movement from the life in the flesh to the resurrection life as we take hold of it now. And there's a tension as we think about that dynamic. Because on the one hand, there is a mysterious, spiritual, and mystical reality to that transformation. The Spirit is at work, and we're going to see that in a minute, renewing us such that we can take hold of eternal life. And at the same time, that movement is comprehensible for us. It makes sense. And Paul can explain what's happening, and we can understand what's happening in our hearts, and in particular, how the gospel itself, how Jesus Christ and the good news of the gospel does the work in our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit to let us take hold of eternal life. And that's what I'm interested in this morning as we look at Ephesians chapter 4. Paul's helping us understand how the mechanics of corruption work, and we'll talk about what that means in a minute, how the mechanics of how we got so messed up by the fall is working on our life, And, and in that, he helps us understand how the mechanics of renewal work in our life. And so I want to examine this text under those headings. Here's our outline this morning. I want to look at the corruption of the old self, secondly, the renewal of the new self, And then third, the school of Christ. That third one will make sense as we go. The corruption of the old self, the renewal of the new self, and then the school of Christ. First, let's think about how Paul describes the old self realities. In verse 22, he introduces this term, and he says that the old self is corrupt through deceitful desires. Our unresurrected self, the the earthly, fleshly self, is corrupt through deceitful desires. Now, corruption is a word that we typically associate with politics and maybe with Washington, D.C., but the the idea here is is of spoiling. The idea here is of rottenness, of decay, of dying. Paul says the old self is decaying. It's it's dying in itself um, through deceitful desires desires. And we, and we get a picture of that spoiled fruit, that rotting fruit of the old self in verse 19. Paul says, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Become callous, given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Now, there's, there's lots of descriptions of sin that Paul uses and the Bible uses. And and this one is colorful in a really helpful way. Because what Paul's saying is that the old self, the rotten self, that rotten decaying fruit, what's going on? It's, It's being ruled. It's being ruled by unrestrained desire. It's being ruled by unchecked desire. It's it's as if, in fact it is, the old self is left with without any guidance and is just doing whatever it happens to want. To do. This is the idea of sensuality or licentiousness. What do you feel? That's what you should do. I feel it, I'm going to do it. And then he has this description of greediness to practice every kind of impurity. And this is a fun little phrase because it's two sins. Greed is a sin. Impurity refers to a lot of sin. But then he puts them together and says, not only are we greedy and impure in our, in our lives and actions, but we're greedy to be impure. 
We are eager to chase after impurity. In our, in our, in our sensuality, we are chasing our desires in an unrestrained fashion, and, and that's the source of our corruption. We're corrupt through these deceitful desires. Now, where does that come from? How do, how do the mechanics of that corruption work? That's what I want to think about briefly in this, in this point. Where does the rot come in in, in, in the old self? Um, look at verses 17 to 18. Paul says that it flows out of some deeper realities. He describes the old self, the, delight, the way of the Gentiles, this way. It's in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart. If we want to summarize what's in here, there there are two big problems that the Gentile old self way experiences. And I want to describe them this way. Alienation and folly. There's two problems. We're fools. We don't know what to do and we're alienated from God. You see that several places here. Alienation, simply we're alienated from the life of God. The idea of being hard of heart is tied to that rejection of God, that rejection of relationship with him. And then folly or foolishness is all over this text. Futility of our minds, darkened in their understanding, having ignorance in them. What's so interesting about verse 18 is how these things are interconnected. There's alienation and there's foolishness. And look at verse 18 again. What does it say? They're darkened in their understanding. They're foolish. Alienated from the life of God. Alienated. Because of the ignorance that is in them. Foolishness. Due to their hardness of heart. Alienation. And so Paul is saying something like, they're foolish and alienated because they're foolish and alienated. And and that's significant. Because... Paul's pointing to this deep reality of how these two realities, how these two experiences of foolishness and alienation actually work together and form what is a vicious cycle of decay in our lives. Foolishness alienates us from God, and being alienated from God makes us foolish. We are foolish and alienated because we are foolish and alienated. Jesus, in John chapter 3, picks up on this vicious cycle, this psychology of sin. In verse 19 and 20 of chapter 3, just after the verse that everyone memorizes, uh, Jesus says this, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people who love the darkness, people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. Light The light of God is both a place of judgment and of guidance. And Jesus says, look, if if you are walking in wickedness, you don't come into the light because you're hiding. You feel that, that guilt, that shame. And as a result, you're a fool because you don't get to be in the light of God. Our six year old son, Henry, the other day um, came in. It was a pretty day in Chicago, finally, after after years of winter, um, and it was snack time. I think it was a Saturday. He said, Daddy, can, can Beth and I go and have our snack outside? And I said, well, sure, buddy, but what, what do you, like, we usually sit at the table and, and be clean. He's like, well, yeah, so we want to do some things 
that I don't think you're going to like. And so we were thinking it'd be better if we did those outside so that we wouldn't get in trouble. Now, Henry is without guile, and that's how he operates. But, but that's the heart. We don't say that, but that's what we do, right? That's this picture. When we want to do bad stuff, we go away from the guidance. We go away from that picture. And that's what's decaying the old self. Alienated from God, we become fools. Fools, we become alienated from God. And it's this cycle, foolishness to alienation to foolishness to alienation. With the result being that we live in darkness, disconnected from God and disconnected from wisdom with only our deceitful desires to lead us. What am I supposed to do? Well, what, what feels like the right thing to do? If you've ever tried to put together furniture from Ikea, um, you need the directions. And if you don't, I tried one time just to do it on my own. And I did what seemed right, and it, it ended up a little wonky um, as a result. And that's the picture. That's the picture that Paul's painting of the old self. Alienated from God and foolish. As a result, corrupt through deceitful desires. All right. That's, that's the mechanism, that's the mechanics. Let's, let's shift then and help, help us to understand how renewal works in light of that. Second point, the renewal of the new self. So after recounting the way Gentile old self minds work in futility in verses 17 and 19, Paul makes a shift, and his shift is interesting in verse 20. He says, but that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming you've heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. The decisive difference, the shift for Paul in this text, is that, or should be that, the Ephesian Christians have learned Christ. Learning Christ is the pivot point. That's an odd phrase, we don't usually say we learn someone, and that's, it's odd in the Greek too, and so some translations try to smooth that out and remove the oddity, but it's right there. And, and happily, Paul gives us help in verse 21. What does it mean to learn Christ? Well, it means to hear about him and be taught in him as truth is in Jesus. This learning Christ is a relational knowledge. It's not, it's not simply knowing about him. It's, it's being taught in him, learning in relationship with Jesus. And it matches up to the prayers that we looked at over the last few months, which have this theme of cognition, which is not simply head knowledge, but it's, it's this deep relational heart knowledge of Jesus that transforms us. And even in the text last week that we looked at, the same idea of maturity as being the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. Learning and knowing Christ and this text at least, is the key instrument of eternity breaking into our lives. Y'all see that? So this old self-corruption machine that we're talking about, it's not you anymore if you are a Christian because you've learned Christ. If you've learned Christ, eternity is breaking into your lives. And we can see how that works a little bit if we think about what Christ brings in relation to that, mecha that mechanic of corrosion that we talked about just before. To learn Christ is fundamentally to reverse the two problems that lead to the corruption of the old self. It is to reverse alienation and it is to reverse folly. To learn Christ 
is to set ourselves on a different path. First, alienation. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to 13, we read this. Paul, talking to the Ephesians, who, by the way, are Gentiles, says, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. This this problem of alienation is fundamentally solved by Jesus Christ himself, who, who takes alienated Gentiles and by his blood brings them near to God, brings us out of darkness and into light. It's, in, it's, in, it's easy to miss this in our passage, but in verse 17, Paul is talking to Gentile Ephesians, okay? And he says, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. He's reminding them right up front You're no longer Gentiles. You've been brought into the people of God. You've been brought near. You're no longer longer aliens. You're no longer foreigners to the people of God. You've been brought near by his blood. And as we are brought near to God through Jesus Christ, as we are reconciled to him, what happens? Well, that vicious cycle is reversed. Because we're brought into the presence of God, and as we are brought into the presence of God, our minds are renewed. We no longer live doing whatever we want to do in darkness. We now live in light. Verse 23 tells us that we have been renewed in the spirit of our minds. The contrast here is with verse 17, the futility of the minds of the Gentiles. Now, how does that work? Well, it's spiritual renovation in our hearts. But what is the Spirit doing? He's, he's teaching us Christ. That's the work of the Spirit. We learn Christ being taught in him. And what does it look like? What's the net result of that? Verse 24. As we learn and know Christ, we put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Now that description has rich meaning in the Bible. The likeness of God is not some abstract idea, but it's a, it's a profoundly important idea tied to the image of God with which we were created in Genesis chapter 1. That image was marred and fallen in the fall, but Christ, we read throughout the New Testament, comes as the perfect image bearer of God. Christ bears God's image perfectly for us, and then the Christian life of sanctification is described again and again in the scriptures as being conformed to the image of Christ. So Christ comes and bears the likeness of God perfectly. And we, as we grow into eternal lives, as eternity breaks into our life, are conformed more and more to the image of Christ. Romans eight twenty nine being a key text there. To learn Christ is to look to Christ to see that we are renewed and restored and reconciled, and then to follow him, to be made like him, to walk in his ways. To learn Christ is to become wise. Christ is our wisdom, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1. 
And so the net result of the gospel is that that alienation and folly that creates this this spinny cycle of corruption and decay in our lives, right? Jesus comes in and solves both those problems. And as we learn Christ, that's worked into our heart, okay? That's a summary of where we've been so far. How do we plug into that? That's what I want to think about as we close this morning. Paul is writing to Ephesian Christians who are Christians, and they need this exhortation. They need to be reminded and called not to live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds, but to be renewed. How, how do we do that? And that's, if you're a Christian here this morning, that's a, hopefully a question that you have wrestled with, um, likely been frustrated by, seen some growth in, but sometimes wondered if it's really happening. How do we live into our new self-reality? How do we take hold of eternal life? And Paul's text here um, gives us a simple answer, which is this. You need to learn Christ. If, if you want eternity to break into your life, if you want to take hold of eternal life, if you want to put on the new self, the decisive thing that needs to happen for you is you need to learn Christ. You need to reverse the alienation. If, if you feel distant from God, if you feel that guilt and shame that leads you wanting to hide, to move away from the Father, you need to learn Christ. You need to look to Jesus. You see his blood that is sufficient for you to draw you near, that is sufficient for you to sit confidently before the Father, not on your own merits, but on his And as we walk through this life being fools, oh, how foolish I am. Not knowing the way we should go, feeling guilty when we put our foot in our mouth, when we do much worse than that and harm other people. We need that grace. We need that promise. And as we pick ourselves up and we say, how am I supposed to live? What do we do? You learn Christ. You want to not be a fool in your life? Learn Christ. Look to Jesus. You want to know how to live your life? Be conformed to the image of the perfect image bearer, Jesus Christ. See his invitation to follow him and walk in his ways. Jesus Christ is what you need. I'm hopefully going to say that a lot for a long time in in this pulpit. That's my goal. Um, I stop saying that, come yell at me, and we'll, um, we'll do something about it. But, but see how this works, guys? It turns this vicious cycle of corruption into a virtuous cycle of renewal. We hear God's pardoning voice through Jesus. We come to him. We see the light. We try to follow him in his ways, and we fall flat on our face in the mud. But the pardoning voice of Jesus calls us back up, dusts us off, cleans off the mud, and says, keep doing it. And so again and again and again and again, we draw nearer and nearer into Christ, learning him and being conformed to his image. How do we do that? We do it in his word and with his people. We're doing it right now. We're doing it in life together as a church. John Knox, the great Scottish reformer, um, 
described John Calvin's Geneva in this way. He said, it was the most perfect school of Christ that ever existed since the apostles. That's probably exaggeration. It's probably not true. And I, I don't actually care about what Geneva was or wasn't. But I love that description. It was a school of Christ. Now this, this was a description of the community, of the church. It wasn't some academic institution. The Genevan church and Trinity Presbyterian Church in Charlottesville, Virginia, we are a school of Christ. That's what this thing is. This is a place we gather to learn Christ, to see the pardoning blood shed for us on Calvary, to see resurrection and our hope, and then to follow in the ways of Jesus, to learn Christ. Do you want to know which way to go? Learn Christ. We are a school of Christ, together, consistently. To take hold of eternal life, to become wise, to put on the new self, we need Jesus. I tell my RUF students this every week, and I I might start telling you all this. Um, I'm going to close with this. We're gathered here today um, talking about growing in faith, growing in righteousness. But what this place is, is not fundamentally about being somebody or doing something. What we are fundamentally about at this church is hearing about living into and learning what Jesus has done for us. We don't first need techniques. We don't need a bunch of rules. What we need more than anything, week in and week out, in small group by small group, sermon by sermon, we need Christ, his finished work for us. Amen? All right, let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much that you have called us out of darkness and into light, that you have called us out of decay and corruption and into renewal and restoration. And you do that fundamentally by teaching us Christ, the one who has completed the work on our behalf, who shows us the way, who walks with us as we go. And by the power of your Holy Spirit, the down payment of eternity in our lives that eternal life is breaking in even now. And I pray that that would happen in this church and in the lives of each of us, that as we grow up into maturity, this church could be said to be the greatest school of Christ in this city and in this state and in this world. God, make it so. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.